Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. When you look at the seven churches of Revelation, there's different methods of interpreting that are, that are acceptable. And then what you have to understand is when you read about the certain churches, there are admonitions given to that particular local church, and there's promises given, there's chastisement given on some of them. Some of them are not being chastised. Some of the promises made to these churches extend beyond the local church, extend beyond what we're seeing historically that happened to them. When you're kept when you're told that you're going to be kept from the hour of testing, which the Philadelphia church is told, they're being told they're going to be kept, or that kind of Christian, that kind of church will be kept from the tribulation period. When you see the church of, what is it, Thyatira, being told, I'm going to cast you on a bed of suffering. You're going to go through the tribulation. I'm going to leave you behind because you're a false church. Our members of you are false. So false believers will be left behind. So, all of a sudden, the, the, the middle interpretation that you're talking about, which is these, these types exist uh, consecutively through the church age, starts coming more into focus and making more sense because these passages extend beyond them. There's debate among scholars whether that's acceptable or not. Frutenbaum accepts it. He understands there's the debate. A lot of the guys I study see that as an acceptable hermeneutic based on promises that are universal. And the fact that it appears that these churches are consecutive. So, yes, that's where the debate is. And therefore, I think the evidence is okay to say, yes, we can look at these as seven epochs of time throughout church history and that they are consecutive, but also drag. The way the way I've always heard my professors talk about is that the church starts, but it drags. Its effects drag. So Ephesus is still with us. Pergamum is still with us. Thyatira is still with us because the Catholic Church is here. Sardis is still with us because the Protestant Reformation is still here. Uh, Philadelphia is still here. And they have a dragging effect. But when the characteristics start happening in a more pronounced way during an epoch of history you generally say, okay, something is different, something has changed, and a new movement in the church has developed. And, and so that's why we would say, like with the, the missionary movement, we never saw a missionary movement like we did after the Protestant Reformation until even today in all of church history, with, with uh, England being at the forefront of that and Great Britain and, and the history attached to that. That was unprecedented. We had never seen that, but yet that's what the Philadelphia church was doing. So I think that's why when you take a literal, consistent, historical approach and then you start splicing these out and start seeing what's really going on here, it's just not the church in general, but there's, there's different epochs of this happening. Obviously, history confirms this. When we study history... And we look at what happened and the general characteristics of history during that time, it's, there's no doubt. You know, when you look at, um, Smyrna and says you're going to suffer for 10 days, we understand in that they did, they did suffer locally 10 days. But we also understand that there were 10 official Roman persecutions of the church. I don't think that you, you can miss that. There, there it is. Um, when the names of the churches, like, you know, Thyatira, uh, which means continual sacrifice, I don't think you can miss that. Because continual sacrifice is exactly what the Catholic Church set up in the altar, in the Catholic Church, in the Mass. When you look at Pergamum, the name Pergamum means thoroughly married. In history, that happened. Constantine married the church with Roman, the Roman Empire. And it became the Holy Roman Empire. And so, that's why, yeah, that second view of all church types exists throughout church history. But 
some types are dominating a particular era of, of history, I think that's the only way you can make any sense of it. I would, I would think, what I, what I see is the remnant church is part of the Philadelphia church. And the, the, the Philadelphia church will drag all the way to the end. And if you notice what the Philadelphia church is, they, um, they're very evangelistic, they're very, uh, they've kept his word, they have, not, they have not denied his name, which means they're doctrinally pure. They're not, they're not infused with corruption like Thyatira and Sardis. And that being the case, there's a lot of Philadelphia churches that are part of the remnant. They're the ones that are promised to miss the tribulation. Before we get into this, what we must understand in an in interpretive process of the seven churches of Revelation, they represent Christendom. They don't represent just true believers. They represent Christendom, the, you know, between, um, you know, the start of the church at Pentecost and the rapture. Well, that being the case, you obviously have been told in Matthew 13, for the mystery kingdom, the age will be made up primarily of wheat and tares. You won't have a pure church. I don't want to confuse the mystery kingdom with the church age. I want to keep those separate, but they run concurrently at the same time. So what did Jesus say about this age? You'll have wheat and tares. That's exactly what we should expect from the church. We don't expect a pure Christendom. We expect a remnant of true believers in the church and predominantly tares among Christendom. That's the general outline. So when you see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, there are believers in those elements, but there are also a whole host of unbelievers who call themselves Christians and are not Christians. So when it talks about in, in certain passages to Thyatira, he's talking to those who claim to know Christ and are not Christians, they will be left behind because they're part of the false church. They will be left behind. So the rapture only includes true believers of Christ. Not professing believers, but true believers who actually possess salvation. So I don't want you to look at the church age and see it as, oh, this represents all believers. It doesn't. It represents Christendom. And their element of the wheat and tares are infused in this as well. Does that make sense? That You have to know that going into this for interpretive uh, issues. Because he, Jesus will talk to those who profess to know him, but don't like the church of Laodicea. He will talk to them and tell them to repent. They're blind, spiritual, nakedness, and they don't even realize it. They're lukewarm. Well, lukewarm means simply that hot means you're a believer, cold means you're not a believer. Lukewarm means I profess to be a believer, but I'm not saved. And that's why it's the church of apostasy. So he will talk to them. He will talk to anyone that claims to know him and tell them to repent. So just because he's talking to them doesn't imply that the church of Laodicea is believers. If you want to think about it, the church of Laodicea, it's the Mormons, it's the Jehovah Witnesses, it's the Roman Catholics, it's all those who claim to know Christ and claim to be Christian and are not, are not true believers because of uh, their doctrinal errors or whatnot. But yet he talks to them and he's trying to warn them, you think you know me, but you don't. You think you have salvation, but you don't. So I'm warning you, I want you to repent of this, and actually, I want you to come to faith in Christ. So he'll talk to Laodicea like that. So you've got to see it from that picture and that how this, this, this whole era of the church age, age plays out. So that goes to you know what your, your interpretational process is on A, B, and C, and D. Letter E is these seven were chosen first because of the particular meaning of their names. And second, because the situation of that particular local church will also be characteristic of a future period of church history. That's why these churches were chosen. Because there was a lot of other churches Christ could have chosen. But he chose these particular ones because of their name and that particular situation. There was multiple churches all over the place. But he names these for a particular reason because it codifies that, that point in history. If you look at letter F, certain statements made to individual churches cannot be true of the strictly local situation. 
They must have a far wider meaning. This is why you have to go beyond historical sense of the churches. And gee, while the letters are addressed to churches as a whole, the promises are, are all to individuals in the church who overcome the problem of the church as a whole. So when he addresses Pergamum or addresses Thyatira or Sardis and he tells them to repent, those people are given the option to get overcome this problem. And if they overcome the problem, they will be rewarded. Not only with salvation, but notice at the end of every church, he'll give promises of what they will enjoy in the kingdom. Some, will, some believers will be able to take from the tree of life. Not all believers will. Some will be given a, na- a name that only they know and Jesus knows and, get, and, and gives them their name because they overcame something. Not all believers will have that. So don't think of these promises that the believers get are universal. They are given to those who overcome the problem. And so that's, that's really important to understand about rewards. All believers get to heaven based on the works of Christ. No doubt about it. That's why there's no, no Jew, no uh, Greek, slave, free, male, nor female. But not all believers will be rewarded the same. Some will have a far greater inheritance than others. And that's what he's trying to tell them if they overcome the problem in their local situation. He's talking to them. And so interpretively, you have to understand then this is a much broader issue than just looking at a historical church and us trying to take application for what happened at that local church. It's happening now. It's happening right now to believers. There are some believers right now that are stuck in a Sardis situation. And they're told to overcome that. Some believers are stuck in, in, in a Smyrna situation or a Pergamon situation. Some believers are stuck in an Ephesus situation. And we'll talk about that and how to overcome those. So before we launch in, if we're interpreting correctly, you obviously see what is the hallmark of the, the, the last days of the church. Laodicea, the church of apostasy. This is why when I talk to you about prophecy, when I'm preaching or whatever, I'll say we're in the last days of, and the great apostasy is happening. It's because I know what the characteristics are for Laodicea. And Paul warned Timothy how the church would become. The church would start looking like the world. In the end, not the remnant, not the Philadelphia church, but the Laodicean church. This is why we're having such a problem right now. We put a couple articles on Facebook showing, like even this week, how apostasy is just ramping up and not stopping and no one's doing anything about it. And the churches that want to have the biggest show in town, the dog and pony show, and the numbers and the money... Well, they let the world system come into their, their church. So now you go to church, some churches and they're playing secular music. Um, they're not even Christian songs anymore now. And the pastor's given, you know, uh, self-help talk. That's what, that's what Laodicean turns into. Self-help talk, self-realization, Joel Osteen types of mentality. Uh, and we're going to rock and roll you out and, and make you feel good about that. And we're, we'll call it good. We'll call that church. And that's, that's kind of the American version of what's happening. So, you know, we see, so we shouldn't be surprised when you see churches now accepting gay marriage or simply we're not going to talk, take a stand on that for evangelistic purposes. They'll always say evangelistic purposes. They always say that. Um, well, we just want to talk about, because we don't want to hurt our evangelism. We want to be seeker friendly. Um, that's from the devil, by the way. Um, that's not an option for the true church. That's not an option for the Philadelphia church. If you look at the promises to the Philadelphia church, they did not deny his word. That means they didn't back off. They kept preaching. And what was the hallmark of Philadelphia? They were evangelistic oriented. And yet they didn't back off the word. It's the opposite of what the Laodicean church does. The Laodicean church says, we back off on the word so we can reach people. It's the opposite. Absolutely. And that's why the Philadelphia movement uh, has been so successful, and it's still a successful day. We were down in El Salvador. You got to see the Philadelphia movement. That's what we're talking about. And and look at the church. I mean, you guys that went, the the, the church we worked with in El Salvador is very much like Rock Harbor, but it's in, it's in Spanish. It's it's Steve's uh, influence because Steve and I had the same training in seminary, and what's happening with him is the same theology I have, and yet. 
you know, it's obviously more open where he's at than America, but he's not backing down on theology. I mean, I'm talking to his youth pastor. I didn't even think he would even understand what I was talking about, about the great whore of Babylon. He tracked right along exactly where I was at. He knew exactly what I was saying. And I'm like, I didn't expect that, but that's what the Philadelphia church does. They know their doctrine. They're up on things, and they witness. They share the gospel, and they disciple. And so you never have to be afraid to back down on theology. That's what the apostate church does. Well, we just want to be seeker friendly. So you guys got, you guys hear about Brian McLaren. You hear about all these emergent church leaders saying, we're just going to be soft on doctrine. And, and then when you test their people in their church and you ask them, is Jesus the only way? They'll say, uh, no, there's multiple ways of salvation. So you know that you're dealing with apostasy at that point. Okay, so let's do this. Let's look at the first church, the the church of Ephesus, why it was pulled out, why it was named, and why it would characterize at least the first century of Christendom. Don't think that it still doesn't exist. It has a dragging effect. The church of Ephesus is still with us um, in, its, in its love for doctrine. Okay? It loves doctrine, but this believer... Has, has, um, has, is very good with cults. It can tangle with, uh, the best doct- uh, doctrines there. Yet, it forsakes its first love. Okay? So let's look at Ephesus real quick. Um, this is the Apostolic Church from 30 to 100 AD. Basically, the timeline, that's when the apostles were alive. We think that John died around 100 AD, somewhere in the neighborhood. He wrote the book of Revelation in 95 AD. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, again, don't mistake this. It's not talking to the pastor. It's talking to that particular angel who's in charge of the church of Ephesus. Every church has an angel assigned to it. And why is that angel there? To witness what's happening at that church and what's happening in that local congregation. That angel is there to protect it, but also to stand as a witness about what's happening. Notice. Christ is the one talking, and he is talking to the angel, telling the angel the local situation. Okay, so the angels are not omniscient like Christ. Christ is the only one that's omniscient, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Christ is telling the angel who guards this church what's going on there. Just like Christ stands among the lampstands in chapter 1, he's among his church, he knows all the local congregation, and that particular angel that's assigned to that church, he tells them what's going on. Because that angel is going to be a witness and will deliver judgment as well, if he has to. So he tells the angel, right, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's the seven angels, that, and he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the golden lampstands were the, the churches. I know your works. That's Christ saying, I'm omniscient. I know what's happening at your, at your church. Your labor and your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Okay. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not false, false apostles, right? False doctrine and have found them liars. You have proven that you have, you do a good job in holding my doctrine and, and making sure you weed out false doctrine. Okay, you guys have done real good at that. Why? Because that's the the apostolic era. The apostles are there to maintain doctrine. They're the ones holding it down from false teachers. But Peter and them have already warned. Paul has already warned that when they leave, savage wolves are going to come in. That's already predicted by the the apostles. That once they're off the scene, things are going to break loose. And it does. Okay, he continues on. And you have, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So you're doing a good job about that. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now stop right there and talk about what, what that means. Leaving your first love. You have left your first love. The first love is Christ. Okay? But let me, let me make some, a note to you. He's not talking to the first generation Christians, the apostles. 
he is talking to the second generation Christians who, who did not have to fight the battles the apostles did to establish the churches. He, he's talking to people who grew up in the church. He's talking to people who had it easy, but they didn't have to, they didn't have to tread out the wine press, so to speak. He's not talking to the pioneers. He is talking to the settlers. Those who had Christian parents, who raised them in a Christian home, and took it all for granted. And what has happened is that first generation is good on doctrine, but the second generation has lost, has left their first love, which is Christ and His Word. And they become apathetic to it. They have become, uh, not, they don't have the zeal that the pioneers have. Because it came easy to them. They didn't have to fight for certain things. It came easy. Folks, that pattern is still with us today in churches. People who are first generation Christians, like Abraham and Sarah, so to speak, they, they, they trudge it out, they learn their doctrine, and their kids get to grow up in a Christian environment. The danger with raising kids after the parents have pioneered their way through Christendom and established themselves, the danger is the kids ride the coattails of the first generation. And if they ride those coattails long enough, they will not have their own faith. And they will not have the zeal and the passion and the devotion for Christ because it came so easy. They grew up in church. I'm not saying that that that, that you can avoid that. I'm just saying the proclivity that Ephesus is teaching is that's what happens with second and third generation Christians who weren't pioneers. They were raised in the church. They had their doctrines right. And yet they don't have the zeal as the parents do. Yeah, they're believers. Yes. They don't, they simply don't have the passion. It's not there. And if you can see that, guys, here's what I want you to think about. A Christian who has their doctrine straight, they know what doctrine is. But they don't love the Lord like they should. They don't love the Word like they should. They're saved, and no one doubts their salvation. They got their doctrine right. And they have believed in Christ, no doubt about it. But they simply don't love Him as much as the first generation. What did Jesus say about people being forgiven? To whom much uh, people have been forgiven a lot, they love much. So, the danger, and we all have to be careful. I have to be careful of my own kids. This is my thought going on in my own kids. I didn't get raised in a Christian home. I got saved at 19 and I had to pioneer my way through Christendom and, and figure out my doctrine on my own. Okay? The danger is I can just simply hand it over to my boys and my girl and it comes that easy. I'm, I'm, if any question they have, they can come right to me. I had to research it. I had to get books. I had to talk to people. I had to find things out. They're never going to have to pioneer like I did. And because of that, the danger is that they won't love Christ as much. They didn't have to work as hard as I did. And I see this over and over again. And this is why I'm totally afraid for my own kids not loving Christ as much. Because they didn't have to work for it. Well, I think what we challenge them to do is not ride my coattails and not just spoon feed, but challenge them to look it up. Research it on your own. Find it where I'll help you. But just simply... Giving the answer doesn't really help them. They need to have their iron sharpened. They need to fight, uh, you know, with a, a Mormon. They need to fight with a Jehovah Witness. They need to go into battle themselves and find out what it is to test their faith. The problem is Christian parents cocoon their kids. That's what's ha That's the movement that's happening in Christendom in America is Christian isolationism. They have got to know what it is to be in the world but not of it. The problem is, what's happening in Christian isolationism is they're pulling themselves out of the world completely. And if you don't know how to deal with the world and fight with the world and know how to answer the world, you can't own your faith. Because you always look to mom and dad. Well, what does dad say? What does mom say? You can't ever produce that. That's a kid that can't defend his faith. He can't contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude talks about. He's got to own it. And so you don't make it easy. You provide opportunities and they have to go after it, but you can't spoon-feed them is what we're finding out. They have to do the research. They have to be put out in the deep end sometimes and say, this is what it's like. This is how the world acts. Don't be surprised by that. 
So Josh McDowell made an interesting statement about this. And I want you to never forget it because I'm not going to forget it. He said this to a parent that came up to him after a, a, a talk and he gave it at, at a church and he was talking about how he got molested when he was younger as a little boy. He talked about that. The mom came up and said, I can't believe you talk like that in the sermon. I got my kids in this sermon and they had to hear about you being molested. He says, lady, you're part of the problem. You're part of the problem. He goes, because you think purity is produced by isolationism. In Scripture, it's the opposite. Purity is produced by preparedness. You have to know what's out there. That's what God did to Israel. He told them, this is off limits. That's off limits. This is off limits. That's off limits. If you just say, I'm not going to even talk about it. We're just going to put you in a bubble and wait till you're 21 and then release you to the hounds? Oh, man. Good luck. That person's not prepared to take on those things. And they lose their faith, so to speak. doesn't mean they lose salvation. They, they, they don't walk as closely as they should because they had their faith shaken. And, and that's the thing is, we're seeing in America Christians doing the wrong things with their kids, pulling them away. I'm going to shield them from evil. Hey man, I know the world's evil. But look, do you really think you're going to protect your kids from pornography? Do you really think that? They're going to school with kids who have smartphones and the internet's right on their phones. Well, I just won't send them to school. Okay, I guarantee you they'll find it. So here's the deal. You have to tell them what's wrong about it. You have to explain this is the problem, why God thinks this is the problem, and why this will mess you up. If you just say, I'm just going to not tell you about what, what's out there and shield you from it, then when they do get exposed, they won't know how to handle it. And then they get addicted. Because we're seeing masses and masses of amounts of kids who don't even go to public school get involved in pornography. How is that happening if they're homeschooling? Well, mom and dad said, I have all the controls at home. They should, they're not getting in here. Guess what? They'll get it at grandma's. They'll get it at their uncle's. They'll get it on the street with a kid across the road. They'll find it. So the, the idea is this. Do not think you can put a kid in a protective bubble from the world. You simply have to prepare them for it. Hey, this is coming your way, dude, and you better be prepared for this. They're going to tell you you're from a monkey. They're going to tell you you crawled out of a primordial suit. They're going to tell you that this is okay. And that's all you can do as a parent is prepare them to have their own faith. That's the mistake of Ephesus. Because they rode the coattails of the apostles, what do you do when the apostles are not there? I can tell you what happened in history. Doctrine went out the door real quick. If you read some of the early church fathers that came right after the apostles, I can't make heads or tell what they're talking about. And neither will you. I read Christentum sometimes, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, dude, you took that, and you just ran off on a topical message. You didn't even say within context. That never would have happened with John, or Peter, or Paul. But you see instantly, when the apostles are off the scene, the early church fathers do not know how to handle the text. And they just, they just sat there, apparently, and, and just took in what the apostles were giving them, but they never learned what the apostles were doing. And therefore, when it came into their time to preach the word, they're taking, they're taking passages and just running off on topic, just totally out of context. And then what that set up for was false doctrine to infiltrate the church, anti-Semitism to come in, and before you know it, you have the Alex school of Alexandria, allegorizing and spiritualizing everything. And before you know it, you don't know what, what it's talking about anymore. Um, that's the problem of the apostolic church is... The kid or the second generation will know doctrine, but they just won't love it. They just will not be there. And unfortunately, I, I'm, I, I say this because I'm paranoid for it myself. I'm simply paranoid about what's happening with my own kids and, and how easy it is for them to just, to, just assume, well, this is, this is normal. Um, they won't, my kids will never experience getting a zero on a, a, a paper. They will never dealing, uh, uh, have to deal with a professor that says, what are you guys, the stupidest people in the world? What are you, from the Bible Belt? They'll never have to experience that. And because of that, you know, I don't want them to ever take that for granted then. Because you and I had to fight for everything we had. 
We have to fight for our faith. We have to deal with difficult people to get where we're at. And then it's kind of like the old saying, you know, you, you, these guys, you know, that, that have these, these big CEO companies, a, a shoe company or whatever, and then they turn it over to the kids. What do the kids normally do? They ruin it. Because it, why? It came too easy. And you see this across the board. They, they, the kids just, they don't, they don't know what it was to get in the trenches and fight for this. And so they just tend to just laugh it away and it, it, easy come, easy go, man. Yeah, the zeal's not there anymore. And, and you can get that zeal back. You have to fan the flame of faith in you, Paul said to Timothy. And you have to do that by, it's, it, it seems, um, counterintuitive, but to get that, fa- that flame back, you've got to get back into the Word and, and you think, well, I don't feel, the, the, the Ephesus person doesn't feel like getting into the Word. They lack motivation for reading the Bible. It's not there. But the counterintuitive is this. If you start reading, it will start fanning the flame. So you've got to jump back in there, even though you don't want to. So what happens is you've got to put your duty there, and then your emotions will come behind it. It's kind of the idea. Your emotions never happen first. Oh, I feel like reading the Bible. I feel like praying three hours today on my knees. You never are going to feel like that. You just simply have to do it. And then eventually your emotions follow, but it's, it comes first by duty. Well, that's the thing is, is the Ephesus individual, cause you're right, Bob, it can, it's not just an indicative of church. There can be people who exemplify this. They typically don't witness. They have no zeal for evangelism. They have no zeal for discipleship. They're believers, but they're just status quo, man. They just got their doctrine straight. They're, they're, you know, you could, you could test them and they would, they would answer right on all doctrinal questions. But there's just simply no zeal to do anything else. They don't serve. They sit and soak. And the, the great thing about these individuals for the pastors, I say great, um, is they will always hammer the pastor, but they never are found in the trenches serving. And I understand pastors make mistakes and stuff, but they are kind of, they, they, they assume the idea of the watchdog in the church. Does that make sense? Because they have their theology straight and they're right. But they, they, they won't jump into the trenches. They won't evangelize. They won't get involved in anything. And their, their, their Bible study, their devotional life is very, very minimal. Very minimal. And so, you know, this is why he's calling these churches or individuals, you've got to stop this. You've got to overcome this. And so if you, he's telling you, you got to repent of this and, and get back to your first love. How do you fall in love with the Lord again? You have to read about Him. You have to know about Him. You have to interact with Him in the Scriptures. Okay, three ways of reading the Scriptures, okay? I want you to get this down. Just off the side. When you read the Scriptures, the first level is simply, if you want to call it, acknowledgement. You're reading the scriptures and you acknowledge what it's saying. Okay, there it is. Okay, yeah, I read that. Okay, uh, through the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things. So when you're doing your devotions, you acknowledge that. Okay, I'm reading that and that's, okay, that's what it's saying. I get it. Okay, so the first basic thing is you have to understand what you're reading. Okay? You have to understand what you're reading. You have to acknowledge what you're reading and say, okay, this is what the text means. Okay. Most people just stay there in their Bible reading. They stay there and they say, alright, I know what that, that passage means. I know what it says. The second level, if you follow in scripture, is conviction. So if I'm reading Ephesus, and like I told you, I'm very convicted about this passage. Very afraid of this passage. It convicts my heart. I feel the Holy Spirit impressing upon me that, boy, Brandon, you better make sure this doesn't happen in the life of your kids. I feel that conviction. Okay, That's the second level when you read the Scriptures. You should feel a conviction over the Scriptures. Then, the third level is delight. 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 Now, if you read Psalm 119, and it's all through the Psalms, you know the psalmist will say, I delight in your word. That term will always come up. I take joy in your word. I take delight in reading your word. Now, why is that important? What I've given you are three levels of understanding the Scriptures. Most people stay at the first level. They know facts. 
That's what I'm talking about the Ephesus guy. He knows facts. But when you go to conviction, he won't go to conviction. He won't let the Scriptures convict him. And then the third one, if they even do feel conviction, like, man, I need to get that straightened out, they won't do anything about it because they don't delight in the Word. You have to say and agree with God, you're right, man. You're right, and I need to change. I, I And I love your Word for you telling me how it is, Lord. I love that you say this is... This is incorrect about my life, and I love that you say this is correct. And you take delight in that. What a lot of believers do when they get to that third level, they don't delight in what he's saying. They don't like it. And so they will not go down into the third level, nor will they go... They might be convicted, but they try to stay away from conviction. And so you, you, you they stay at the top level. Facts. Just simply facts. They can tell you, you know... All the names of every Bible character. They can tell you, oh, there's you know, 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament. There's you know, 50, 50 IMs in this book. But there's no conviction and there's no delight. Kenny, and then we'll go back. Right. That's where I'm going with it. Because that's the level you want to get is that you delight in His Word. If you delight in His Word, you will read it. And your fervency and your zeal for Christ will rise up. Yeah, you got freedom now. Yeah, that's right. And that's right. And, and and that's where we want to get. You start seeing the nature of God. You start seeing what He's trying to do to help you, and that brings the light that He's for you. He's not against you. That's why He calls things out about us. And so He convicts us, and and we we're supposed to change, and and we motivated to change. Now here's the deal. What you're starting to see now in Christendom is people are not delighting in the Word. First of all, they won't even go there to even understand the context. But then if it does get into that level, they don't like what it says. Because there's a lot of Christians now that don't like Romans 1. They don't like the issue that it's calling out homosexuality to be a sin. They don't like that. They're not delighting in the Word. Because if they did delight in it, they would uphold it and say, no, that's wrong. So when they move off of doctrine, and when you ask Christians, is Jesus the only way? And they say no. They're not delighting in the Word anymore. They don't like what God is saying. And that can happen to believers, especially those who are in sin. They will not delight in what He is saying. You're right. And then that's where you have to obey the conviction. Because you can be convicted and not obey. He can be on you and saying, you've got to get this right in your life. You've got to get this right in your life. You're lagging on this, man. Come on, come on, come on. And you just ignore it. That's called developing a calloused heart. And when you develop a callous around your heart, you can't feel the pinprick of the Holy Spirit convicting your heart. So the first time He convicts you will be the hardest one. You're like, oh, wow. And then if you don't react to it, you'll build a callous. And then you'll get a more callous. And this is why... A lot of Christians, when they're looking at another Christian that's so far away, don't realize they have went through years and years of callousing their heart. That's why they're acting like this. Their hearts are calloused. And it doesn't mean they're not a believer. It's their part of Ephesus. They're calloused towards the conviction. And they don't delight in, the, in God's Word. And so they're, they're at that point. So, of course, they're not going to have any zeal. They're going to sit on the sidelines. Church attendance might be 12 times a year. If, if that, Christmas and Easter will be hit, no doubt. And if anything doesn't get in the way, they'll attend church. But if it's, it's we're going to go on the, the lake and go jet skiing or whatever, hey, I'm going to go do that. And that's kind of the mentality of the Ephesus person. But there's, the doctrine is straight. But watch what else he says. Check this out. But, I, but in verse 6, But this you have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Nicolaitans is Nicol and then Latian. You can see the word laity in that. And Nico is ruling over the people. Ruling over the laity. Okay, we don't know historically where this person, Nicol, came from. Or Nicholas or whatever. It must have been a historical figure that tried to teach a heresy that there was a difference between 
the laity and the clergy. Okay? So what they're good about is they definitely know that the pastors are on the same level with them as in the priesthood of the believers. So they resist this because eventually this will not be resisted. And what will happen is a, a split between the laity and the clergy will happen in church history and is with us today. Even in Protestantism, the split has happened. Look, you guys have as much access to Christ as I do. I don't have any special thing because we're in the priesthood of all believers. You you have Christ as your mediator. You do not have to go through any person. But the practice of the Nicolaitan says you have to go through your pastor to get things. And your pastor has special powers or special special intercessory abilities to pray for you and special authority. It, it, it doesn't. It's not, it's not that. The good thing about that is they resisted this. But here's the deal: it happens in Protestant. It doesn't mean I'm. You know, we're talking about Catholic priests. It happens in Protestantism. What I have noticed in Protestantism is that the, the, the pastor, even though he doesn't wear the robes of a priest, will be treated like one. And he will lord it over the people. And the cult of personality develops around this individual. And he makes the people dependent on him because he's not teaching the word correctly. And they're dependent on him what they say. That's what We're talking to Steve in El, in El Salvador. That's exactly what's happening in El Salvador. The, the people won't read their Bible, so they follow the, these crazy... Um, charismatic, extreme uh, people, and they don't know why, but they follow them like they're a Catholic priest, and they won't buck the system. Well, it, it, let me go back a little bit more in history. It came from Babylonian, and the Babylon, uh, you know, Tower of Babel in your Bible set up, and, and Satan set up the false religious system. He set up a division between the laity and the clergy. And that the clergy in the, in the Babylonian priests had special powers to do things for the people. They would be able to cast spells and do certain things. And that, that's what's, where it started is the Tower of Babel. Okay. What happened then, that's always been there in false religions. If you go to like, um, you know, in, Hind, in, in Hinduism, you got the yogis. You know, everybody will look at those guys and, and they're, they're, uh, or in Buddhism, the uh, what's the name of the guys in Buddhism? Um, his name slipping. The monks, the monks in Buddhism, and people go to them for special things, and they have special powers and stuff like that. And and what's the the main guy in Nepal? Um, the Dalai Lama. That dude's littered with demons, just full of demons, according to missionaries that have been around him. And uh, they look at them as a special class of people. Well. It's always been there. What happened is it started infiltrating into the church very early on. And so false people, false doctrine started slipping in and tried to practice that and start saying there should be a division even in Christianity. Well, they were able to hold it off because the apostles were there and they didn't prevent, they prevented that. And even that second generation prevented it. But as you'll see, by the time of Thyatira happens, the Catholic Church, it got in. And then it goes full blown at that point in time. And even in Protestantism, it's still there. It's still there and you can see it. And you, you'll walk into a church and you're like, oh my goodness, this is a cult of personality. They're following this guy like a Catholic priest. And, you know, even though he's wearing a suit and tie, he might as well have been wearing the vestments of a priest because that's how they're treating him. Um, and it happens and it happens all over the place. I am noticing this in evangelicalism that it's happening in, in the charismatic movement more pronounced than anything. Those guys will say, well, don't, thou shalt not touch thy, thy anointed. They'll take that verse out of context. That verse is only referenced to two people, the kings of Israel, David and Saul. And it, it has nothing to do with pastors. And yet the charismatics will pull that out of context and say, yeah, we can't really talk about the pastor. Even though he's crazy... And even though, even though he's making false pronouncements, I ain't gonna say anything because thou shalt not touch thy anointed, because I'm gonna have some curse on God, from God on me. And that's just crazy. That's, that's Nicolaitanism. And, and they don't call out their, like a guy like Todd Bentley. I mean, you know, if you've ever seen this guy, he has a healing ministry or whatever, and people come up forward, and he's the kicking pastor. You ever seen him? He's like, 
the guy will come up and go, I got cancer in my stomach. And he'll come up and sock them in the stomach. And, and then, or he'll kick people in the head and, and kick them on the ground. And, and he just is roughhousing them. I, seriously, YouTube this, Todd Bentley, and you'll see this. It's the most bizarre thing. He's beating people up, cracking their ribs and all kinds of stuff. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit is knocking uh, the disease out of them. It's the most bizarre thing you have. And yet thousands and thousands of people follow this guy. And, and you know, thou shalt not touch thy anointed type of mentality. It's a false prophet. He's obviously a false prophet. But um, this is how people fall for that junk. It's, it's Nicolaitanism. So it came from Babylon. Long story short. Uh, and then he goes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. What were they supposed to overcome? What's the big problem? What's the condemnation? You have left your first love. The promise then is if you overcome this, this, this apathetic attitude that you have towards me, I will let you share from the tree of life. The tree of life we'll see in Revelation, uh, what, 21, 22 is there in heaven at the new Jerusalem, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, he says. The believer that overcomes this problem will have that share. Now, if you're already zealous for the Lord, you're already automatic. That's a, that's a, a gift that you will be given in eternity, is that you have a special privilege in eternity to share from the tree of life. Now, not all believers will have that. It doesn't mean you're not going to be in heaven. Is that you? People will experience eternity different based on what they did here. Rewards matter, man. And, and no one wants to lose out on rewards. So he's saying, overcome this problem in your life and you will get to share. But what's the alternative? If you don't, it doesn't mean you're not going to go to heaven. It just means you will not share in that portion of eternity. You will not be allowed that. So we don't know all the implications of that, what that means, but it's very important because Christ is putting that out there that you overcome it so you can participate in the tree of life. And we'll see that with all the other uh, churches. Okay. So with that said, any questions so far? He's talking to believers. He who overcomes, he's talking to believers. He who overcomes will eat of the tree of life. That's a reward. That's not a term of salvation. I'll give you another example. In, in the church of Laodicea, he will tell them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm outside. He who opens a door and basically allows me, I will dine with him and he with me. That term that I will fellowship in table, table fellowship is a term of salvation. So we definitely know in that context, he's talking to people who think they're Christians, but he's saying, you're not. And I want to have a relationship with you, table fellowship. I want to sit down and dine with you. I want to have, I want you to be saved. So based on what he has said, based on that criteria and what he is telling these churches is that um, it determines what he is saying. So with Ephesus, he's not calling them unbelievers. They have their doctrine straight. He's telling them, you've got a, a sanctification issue, a discipleship issue that I need you to overcome. And because of that, it lends into why this is a reward rather than a plea for salvation. If that makes sense. It is vague. It is very vague. Well, I mean, if you go back to the tree of life, what was happening in the garden? They were tending the garden, and the tree of life was being partaken of because it kept them alive. Now, I don't know what this implies in glorification, because we will be glorified, but um, just a snippet of it, because hey, I, I'm with you. It, it's not really clear, and that's the thing about rewards. We don't have a, a very good understanding of all that it implies, and so I'm with you. The best I can tell you is if we read in Revelation, Okay, verse uh, chapter 22, yeah, chapter 22, Revelation. And verse 1, we'll start. This gives some ideas, but it's still kind of fuzzy. 
And he showed me a, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of this street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Okay, that used to be in the Garden of Eden. Now it's in the New Jerusalem, right? Which bore 12 fruits. It produces things once a month. Do you notice it's an indication of time in heaven? Yeah, there's time in heaven. It's just time without end. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, or the goyim. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now, if you look at that, there's there it is in heaven. And the leaves have some type of healing power for the nations. Okay, this is not a, a millennial passage. Revelation 20, 21 and 22 are strictly eternity passages in the New Jerusalem. It, those two chapters in Revelation 21 and 22 are the only chapters in the Bible that actually speak about the conditions of eternity. The rest of the passages you'll see in the Old Testament and New refer to the millennium or the kingdom age. So, when you see that, okay, there's something there that it produces fruit, it's edible, the, 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 the tree has healing powers in it. I'm not sure. I, I've studied this ad infinitum. I really don't know. Um, because I think what we're trying, what God is trying to say is, these things exist, but I'm not flushing this out for you. Because I've looked at guys who comment, and their, their comments are all over the place. Because we can't really get a good grasp about what's going on in eternity. Apparently, there's some benefit spiritually of partaking of its fruit and its leaves in eternity that will benefit certain believers who have access to this. I don't know what it does for them, but other believers in eternity will not have access to it. And so, you know, what we see in scriptures are privileges, authority, uh, different cases of being, so to speak, they're all glorified, but somebody's experience is going to be far different than another person's experience in heaven. And I know a lot of people just think, well, we just all get there, I'll just be happy. No, 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 no. That's the wrong perspective. Paul tried to demolish that perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 of saying, look, some of your guys' works are going to be burned up and you won't have anything to offer. You know, Christ will say, I can't reward you for anything because you, you, you got saved, but you didn't do anything. You didn't overcome certain things. You know, for instance, some, if you, you talk about the five crowns, I don't know what that means. Except I, I, can, I can tell you, I think what it means is that you have certain amounts of authority more than other believers. How that authority is flushed out in eternity, I really don't know. But the indication of a Stephanos, of to martyrs, to pastors, to those who overcome temptation... Um, to those who live a godly life. Uh, it gives you a certain responsibility. It gives you a certain authority in, in heaven. But at the end of the day, I don't know how that flushes out. That's all I can tell you. And that's all the scripture wants you to know. And so what you got to be real careful about rewards is they're important, they're there, and you're called by Christ that this is a big deal, but he doesn't go any further than that. And basically he's saying, you just need to trust me on this one. I'm not going to tell you how this flushes out, but I'm telling you they're important. And you don't want to miss this one. So it, it's, it's kind of, the old thing in my mind is this, okay? If, if I take my wife to a baseball game, we go to Dodger Stadium or I go to Angel Stadium, and we go to the game, we're both at the game. We're both having a good time. We're at the game. But I see the game and enjoy the game at a much different level than she can. Yeah. Because I played it. I know what it is when a guy is bases loaded and you got two outs and the game's on the line. She's enjoying the hot dog. Right? <laughs> and it's not a knock on her. But it's a difference between somebody who has played the game and someone who says, I, I'm just having fun. Look at the funny colors in, in, the, the, in the diamond vision. 
And, and, you know, they're looking at the rally monkey at the Angel Stadium jumping up and down. And I'm thinking, what are you looking at a monkey for? Um, we got, you know, bases loaded and, and it's a tie game, man. And there, she's just happy to be there. Okay, so if you can grasp that illustration, some people in heaven will have a way different experience than another person. It doesn't take away the joy of that person will have in heaven, but you will be able to experience at a much greater and deeper level than had you been someone who just got saved and didn't do anything. You'll have a lot more opportunities, a lot more uh, uh, service to the Lord, a lot more uh, responsibilities, authority, and however that flushes out, I, the best I can do is give you that analogy and say, you're going to enjoy it a lot better if you do more here now. Hmm. Maybe at the judgment seat, but not so much in heaven. Um, the, 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 let me let me let me capitalize on that. Why is there constant references of shame to believers? Have you noticed that? I've showed you those passages in discipleship. They're not passages about salvation. It's they're talking about a believer being ashamed. That's right. So what I'll say is, I don't know necessarily if it says there's going to be tears, but Christ is warning about shame in front of the judgment seat of Christ when we stand before Him. Um, I think once the judgment's over, the shame will go away, obviously, and that's what you'll live with in eternity. But there are going to be believers that are going to be shamed, ashamed in front of Him on at the Bema seat because they, they don't have anything to offer Him. Basically, you know, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, those who built on wood, hay, and stubble have their works burned up. There's nothing to reward them for. I think, I think the grieving will obviously be evident of, I wasted my life. I wasted my salvation. I was saved, but I didn't do anything for the king. So that, yes, there's, could be tears. Right. You wicked and lazy servant. Um, let me let me let me capitalize on what you're just saying, and I'll, I'll come to your hand in just a second. The parable of the the talents, Matthew 25, the guy who has five talents, two talents, one talent, can be misinterpreted many times for a salvation passage, and it's not. He's warning believers. The the throwing out of outer, outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You got to remember those are terms that yes, sometimes they refer to hell, but sometimes they were refer to sorrow and gnashing of teeth. Is a regret in Hebrew is the idea. It's a, a sorrow, a mourning. Being thrown out in outer darkness doesn't necessarily mean thrown out into hell. And, and, and so you have to use the terms in the right context. Otherwise, you'll take passages that are for believers and say, well, you, obviously, outer darkness or national teeth means hell. And he's not talking about that. In many, many passages, being thrown out is, is, in, in, that, in that world, you had to be inside the court, inside the gates. And you didn't want to be on the streets. You didn't want to be because that's where the dogs were, and that's where all the filth was. You wanted to be on the inside of the courts, and inside of the gates of the homeowner. That's where safety was. That's where everything was at. In many discipleship passages, the Lord will use that terminology in the fact that those believers who buried their talent in that, in that Matthew 25 passage will have that gnashing of teeth because they regret burying that talent. And they're either now, they're put out, not from salvation, they're put out from being rewarded, is the idea. So, to your point, yeah, exactly. It, it, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew I was a hard man. So basically, they didn't step out because they were fearful. Fearful of what Jesus would do to them. And, and that Jesus wouldn't provide for them and things like that. And so, he calls them, you wicked and lazy servant. You were just lazy. And that's a, that's a believing passage uh, to believers. Um, yeah. Question. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons, 
and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is the Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.